dinga boom dinga boom the finley the we good? Are we good? Are we ever good? Are we actually good? Are we people? Are we humans? I don't know. What's that thing that you do? Red leather. Red leather, yellow leather. I'm not sure where I heard that. I swear to God, but it was like a, a vocal stretching exercise, if you will, that the actors presumably do, unless where I heard it was full of shit. In which case, I'm passing it along to all three of our listeners. Could be. These poor bastards. Get a life. Yeah. You know what I was thinking about? Um, I'm just sort of segueing. Segu, my friend. What I was thinking about was um, odd Hollywood relationships. Mm. And I was thinking about uh, from classic Hollywood. And, and one of like the center of the wheel of odd relationships, I think it's Humphrey Bogart because mm-hmm. he was great friends with Spencer Tracy, mm-hmm. but also like Frank Sinatra and also Richard Burton. Mm-hmm. All these people that you wouldn't necessarily think of as Bogart-esque, right? Right. He had that. I mean, the whole the whole Rat Pack thing came from Bogart. A lot of people don't know that. Tell the story. Well, uh, there it is. I mean, the name Rat Pack actually uh, far predates you know Frank Sinatra and his pals hanging out. It so was we think really... of like Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., right. Joey Bishop, sure. the Peter classic Rat Pack, and the Rat Pack movies, and yeah. all that kind of Ocean's stuff. Eleven. They were actually in their day. They weren't known. Primarily as the Rat Pack, they were known primarily as the Clan, which we're right. gonna pa- we're gonna bypass that real sure, quick. Sure, it's a bad yeah. For some reason, travel has but a shelf life. The name Rat Pack actually comes from Lauren Bacall, uh, and it was at uh, it was Humphrey Bogart and all of his friends, and one of one of them was very frequently, as you pointed out, was Frank Sinatra. Yep. Uh, and uh, you know, after a night of debauchery, which was only common in any gonna, Bogart household. Oh shit, yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to say any in any of almost any of these Hollywood stars. Yeah. Probably had this kind of thing going on. We'll yeah. talk about the we'll talk about the Marx Brothers Grotto at some point. They I read a book on the Marx Brothers that will blow your mind oh, so in terms amazing. of the, their, the pussy hounds that oh, those guys were. Crazy. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. But uh, but uh, but after a night of this debauchery, Bacall walks in on this on these you know these these drunken thugs laying all over the, the house and go, what a pack of rats. Yeah. And they just decided to call themselves the Rat Pack, and then Frank Sinatra sort of inherited that mantle. You well, know, he inherited Lauren Bacall too. Yeah, I think well, Bogart was dead for like six weeks or something before she started dating Frank which, Sinatra. Yeah, I know, which shows a remarkable restraint for Frank. Good, good point. Come on, dude. He was not. But he was, he was a great guy, but not a good guy. I don't know. That that's always been my take on him. No, of course. I well, I think he's a rapist, actually. Well, yeah. So yeah, a good guy, you know. <laughs> yeah, Ugh, Tom. But Dude, the almost reason, every guy, the reason <laughs> almost I brought, every guy almost was clinically, by our definition of it today, almost every male in the fifties probably was a rapist. That's probably true. So, so the reason I brought that up is I think one of the strangest sort of Hollywood relationships that Bogart had is that he was really good pals until his death in nineteen forty-two with Leslie Howard. That's not right. They were actually pals, and and and. Yeah, I, I know Howard had a real soft spot for Bogart. Yeah, we, we'll be talking about this in just a few moments here. Yep. Uh, but I was not aware that they were like you know. A yeah, well, uh, Howard was was um, died in a when his plane was shot down over Europe. A passenger, Black- like a, not a pass. He was um, what do you call it when you're a, a civilian but you're allowed to sort of hop with a military plane, supercargo passenger, whatever. And and that plane was shot down during the war in wow. 1942. And so uh, Leslie Howard died that mm-hmm. year, and, and Bogart was devastated by it because they had been close friends. And yeah. Howard had given him one of his first breaks. Absolutely, one of the one of the one of the great breaks in Hollywood because this was a this was a 
This was the second time romance. Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to say this, that it, it actually started before Hollywood, because <laughs> mm-hmm. Robert Sherwood wrote the play right. in 1933-34, The Petrified Forest. The Petrified Forest. And Bogart was cast in the play as Duke Mantee. Mm-hmm. And, and this, is the, this is the on-Broadway play we're talking on about. On-Broadway play, on-Broadway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Leslie Howard was in the play. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I want to say, I don't remember where this comes in Leslie Howard's career. Has we already gotten past Gone with the Wind at that No, moment? no, no. no. no, no Gone with the Wind's 39. Right. 34 is of human bondage, and 36 is the petrified forest. Right. So he had this early relationship with Bogart. Wow. Yeah, and this was, again, this was Bogart's second attempt. He had tried to tried to break Hollywood earlier. It hadn't worked for him. Mm-hmm. Went back to Broadway and, and doing acting on stage. Yeah. Got this, got this role, it, the, almost the perfect role. Yeah. Almost as Duke Mantee in the Petrified Forest, and the rest is in a sense history. But what happened was is that uh, Hollywood said, "That's a great. We're going to make a movie out of that. We're going to put some of our best stars into it." Yeah. Leslie Howard insisted that they bring Bogart, who'd in. done a great job on Broadway. Did a great, great job on Broadway, and then, and, and then in a sense, like terrified and electrified the country in the movie The Petrified Forest too. Well, uh, yeah, and Bogart had a, a lot of strange things about him. I, I think in World War II he'd been in the Navy, and there was some sort of story about he was um, cutting wood on like a bandsaw, mm-hmm. and a piece of wood had smacked him in the face, and that's how he got that sort of famous Bogart lisp. But I think it was actually World War One. What did I say? World War Two. Sorry, it definitely was World War One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, he was bald. I didn't know that for a long time, mm-hmm. that he was bald. Yeah. So there is hope, Tom. Well, thank you, thank you. Well, if I could just if I could just lose a couple of petrified forests here, he's pointing to his asshole. Uh, oh yes, absolutely. That's that just has the right ring intonation. Oh, to it. Boo. oh, sorry, I didn't mean to take it into a bad and evil place. So. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> well, you branched out to it. Yes, I branched Davidian out. So okay, so petrified forest, nineteen thirty-six. Mm-hmm. Bogart's not actually the star. He's got like third or fourth billing. Third. We have your, you got your mm-hmm. Betty Davis. Well, you, yeah. First off, there were massive stars in this movie. There was Betty Davis and Leslie Howard, just right. to name two, right? Just to name. Well, the only really two the I can name right now. <laughs> but, Come to the, uh, the two. Yeah, so... It but, was their vehicle. This is one of those... Okay, so let me... I'm going to theorize here. Um, it's 1936, and, and so motion pictures have... Uh, they've been using sound for, I don't... That makes six, seven years. Eight years. And and movies, Hollywood movies, have been around for 20-something, maybe. Maybe 25, technically, if you yeah. go back to, like pre-studio 1911 you know whatever it is so so it's how do we get this art form to talk about america when they talk about america it's kind of ridiculous in 1936 Mm -hmm. um to make a film about the 20s although they did a few years later with the roaring 20s sure um so what kind of history do you draw on and there's like westerns of course um Mm -hmm. but i think one of the things they want to talk about that's an american sort of natural american tragedy is the dying of the old west the dying of the sort of the pioneering sort of movement Mm -hmm. and so i think i think that's one of the things that this film is about among many other things right right it's it it had been you know a very sort of a large shift at the earlier part of the century and america still hadn't really kind of hadn't really kind of figured out how to work with it. Yeah. Really hadn't. And I think it really plays, I think the, you know, the, the gangsters, uh, by which I mean not like the traditional gangster. I'm talking about like the Bonnie and Clydes, 
Uh, the anti-heroes, the, the, the sort of the baby-faced Nelson, baby the, Nelsons, the Robin the, Hoods. The bank robber guys. Yeah. Uh, let's, Dillinger, of course. We'll get yeah. into him in just a minute. But all those people, they all played to that mentality and that mythology that we still hadn't quite outgrown yet. And this, there is some of that going on. There's A few years later, there's, there's Angels with Dirty Faces. Two mm-hmm. years before this, in 1934, there's William Powell and, and Clark Gable in a, a movie called Manhattan Melodrama, which is all about the sort of like the two tough kids growing up. Right. One becomes the district attorney. One becomes becomes a criminal, of course, the district attorney Jesus, has to how many prosecute. Times that, how many times has that goddamn movie gotten over made over the years? Over and over again. Man. But John Dillon, by the way, was shot coming out of that very movie. That's right. Manhattan Melodrama Manhattan in 1934. Melodrama. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So, so yeah, so the, I think that's one of the things that this film's about. We haven't even talked, like, given any plot line yet, but that's mm-hmm. one of the things that this film's about. Another one, and it's mentioned heavily in, in the film, is this idea of naturalism, this sort of literary movement where it's it's man against nature. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an extension of, like, Darwinism and then sort of maybe a, a discussion about social Darwinism. Right. It also it also has to do a little bit with the the morals and ethics of the old world versus the new, right? The older, more refined world, the uh, the less the much less refined, much more brutal world of the of the West of, of let, let's put it in it's France versus America, just specifically. Yeah. But you know, Europe versus America. What you know? What, what do they treasure? What do we treasure? And you know, uh, and, and this this play slash movie, you know, makes yeah. the makes the case that ours is the dynamic. The dynamic movement that's going to push the rest of the world forward, and it's really, in a sense, it's a, it's a very pro-American play, yeah. but kind of bit with a bittersweet look back at an older, more genteel and refined way of living. Also, Betty Davis is hot. In 1936, and I don't know Betty Davis to be hot. I grew up seeing Betty Davis as an old woman, first of all. Right. And and Kim Carnes said she had Betty Davis eyes, but I didn't give a shit because I don't think the eyes are that amazing. They're they're big, like dishy eyes. But mm-hmm. when I saw Betty Davis as a kid, she was frightening. She was in like the Return to Witch Mountain type of phase. <laughs> Before that, if you go back 15 years, she's whatever happened to Baby Jane. She's a she's a nightmare. She's one of the first stars that I'm aware of. Who just refused Hollywood dental care? As far as I know, she had like wood paneling brown teeth. <laughs> but in this movie, she plays this waitress at at this at the cafe, this uh, Black Mesa cafe in uh-huh. the middle of nowhere, middle Arizona, nowhere. Yeah. outside of the petrified forest. Um, who has dreams and she's she's dreamy eyed, but she's also like really f- she's full she's attractive physically, but she's something inside of her is something yeah. got a character. Yeah. She she wants to get the fuck out of this place where yeah. she's been planted, mm-hmm. and it's and, and immediately in the film it becomes apparent to us that there are two dynamics working. The one dynamic that sees something like Black Mesa, Arizona, in the middle of nowhere as the opportunity of America, yeah. and then the other side. Which is quick story. I was in England about twelve years ago, mm-hmm. and I, I spent some time in London, and then I went down about forty-five minutes south of London to this village called Balcom, England, mm-hmm. and I was having everything about it to me. I went to the Tesco, which is like the Safeway of England, but I was like, I'm in Tesco, and I'm I'm paying in pounds, and everything was amazing to me because I'd never been to England before, and I had my passport and my traveler's checks, and I get to the checkout line, and there's this sort of like cow-eyed 16-year-old girl, and and um, and she says, oh, with the traveler's checks, I'm going to need an ID, and I, I give her my passport, and I, at the time, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd lived in San Diego, so it's in San Diego, California, USA, and she looked at it, and she paused, and she, she said, California, why would 
anyone come here? She was so disappointed in me as a person for coming to Balcom, England, her her dreaded village that she wanted to get out of when I could be I get back to in shit. San Diego. I get to shit on authentic Scottish moor. What are you talking about, lady? Yeah, I get it. I mean, it's everyone. Well, so grass is greener and so of forth. Course, but yeah, it's yeah. that story. And mm-hmm. so so we start with um, with Gabby, uh, played, God, played I just by... just realizing we could probably do the entire show on this one. Maybe we should. No. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. But right. so, so, so we start with Gabby. And um and she she's I don't know how old she's supposed to be. She's supposed to be nineteen or twenty. I guess eighteen or nineteen. I, somewhere somewhere between seventeen and twenty, right? And she, and, yeah. and just before you go any further, I want to stop and and I want to back you up on that. Mm-hmm. In fact, she's so much. She's so freaking cute in this movie. Yeah. And I think cute is the word. I yeah. think she's like a Juno esque cute almost. There's mm. this weird little joie de vivre she's got going on there. <laughs> I, I think Tom, now I hate you. Mm, yes, yeah, some joie de vivre in our cinema verite. Yeah. Anyways, uh, just the uh, the fact that like I don't I think I saw that. Movie 15 times before I realized it was Betty Davis. For the longest time, oh, I yeah, just wasn't yeah, yeah. paying attention to the yep. credits. Like, oh, it's a yep. cute chick again. And somebody's like, yes, yeah, Betty Davis. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I had no idea for the yeah, longest time. Amazing. I no, apologize for No, I, I mean, that was a, f- a fine side one, no, no doubt about it. But so, so, so she plays Gabby, this character, and she's a young lady. She's under 21. And she's there. She's sort of stuck as a waitress in this cafe gas station with her father. Who owns who's, it? Who's a, t- a quote unquote tin horn patriot. You know, he'd, he'd been in, in the war, the Great mm-hmm. War. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he hadn't seen any sort of um, action in the war. He'd been a mechanic. Right. So he, he feels like a failure. He, uh, but he somehow convinces some beautiful French woman to come back with him to Arizona. Well, they get uh, married, right? They get married and they have Gabby. And then the and then the mother abandons them and goes back to, to Bourges, France. You guys cook your fucking cheese. I'm out of here. Let's go. So so Gabby sits there reading Francois. <laughs> that was my, my French accent, by the way. That's oh, terrible. Uh, <laughs> so fuck. so Gabby sits there reading the poetry of Francois Villon, who's this great great you know French sort of um, uh, bandit poet of the, I think the 16th century. He's, he's what Doug wants to be, but that's our friend Doug. Yeah, our friend Doug. Yeah. So I so, read a couple of his books. Who Doug or Francois Villon? Francois Villon, yeah. No, okay. come on. <laughs> Nobody cares. All right. So either way. So 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 she, it's perfect. She's sitting there looking at like, oh France. If I could only get out of terrible mm. America and right. terrible um, Arizona. And along comes, I mean, there are other things happen, but along comes Leslie, Leslie Howard, Howard, who, who plays the character Alan Squire. And Alan Squire is is an Englishman who's lived in France on the Riviera, mm-hmm. who's written his unsuccessful novel, yes. who's 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 seen the world and all the romance. And what he thinks is romantic now is is to travel the United States using his thumb, traveling through places like Black Mesa, right. Arizona. It's this mm-hmm. pioneering part of America. So he's the wiser, older, literate man, mm-hmm. and she's the young woman who thinks that if she could become literate, she could go places, right? Right, right. And at the same time, I think this also plays a little bit. This is definitely a lot of lost generation subtext going on in here. Yeah, okay, expatriates. Right, so, you know, expatriates. But in yeah. this case, it's it's a little different because the expatriate comes to America yeah. and seeks the desolation they of the desert. They call that a reverse expatriate. Mm, Goddamn. Okay, well, we're going to go back to my French accent. Oh. <laughs> so... Ellen Squire. Yeah, so there's this meeting of these two people, and it's, mm-hmm. it's actually kind of gorgeous and touching and beautiful yeah. because she thinks everything that he's done is amazing, and he thinks she's amazing because she's fresh. She's, she's fresh. Pure. She's unspoiled. She absolutely... She has that, like I said, that 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 sense of you know. There's an excitement. There's a percolation in her mm-hmm. that goes on, which is, by the way, not unnoticed yeah. uh, by uh, by a local, uh, basically an idiot, <laughs> just this jarhead moron yeah, who, who works, works at the, the gas, gas station, station yeah. named Bo. Who, Bose. He's is a, this Bose, I think. 
it's Bo. Bo's. You're right. Yeah, yeah. it's Bo's. He's a he's a running back for some college team. She couldn't be she couldn't be more bored shitless. But at the same time, she kind of has been reacting to him as the only you know fuckable male for miles in any given direction. Yeah, uh, with any kind of availability. So she's been she's been toying with that and then Alan Squire shows up and suddenly oh this guy talks about things I want to hear about and he's so read goes, Francois Villa he's she, read these he he knows about painters and right and she's she's meanwhile she's painting these desolate landscapes of yeah. the you know the desert in, in which he lives and he finds a certain amount of beauty I mean we never get to see the picture so we're never really sure if he's you, you just assume he's being honest when he gives her a, a pretty decent appraisal of him. Well, and then also, so then the other thing is like it, the, all this sort of commentary starts to seep in. So it's like it's really interesting that in 1936 they're kind of making fools of blind capitalist adherents. Oh, absolutely. the religion of capitalism. The religious of capitalism. The religious of all the the weird, you know, uh, the, the things that they feed the mat, the sports. Yeah, Bose's Bose's is comical. Yeah, all right. Her dad's impre- her dad's belief in a in being a thrifty American yeah. who's a patriot who doesn't and, accept tips that's un-American. Right, you know that kind of yeah. stuff. They're, they are they're definitely poking fun at. And that. there's all this sort of classism that comes in you. Know, this rich couple with and and race, of course, because they Jesus, have this they have ins- ridiculous sort of shuffling um, black American mm-hmm. chauffeur. Um, they come into the cafe and 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 um, anyway, so they end up. I don't want to give everything away, but but yeah. but Alan Squire ends up leaving the cafe mm-hmm. with the rich people who are going to give him a ride to some larger city, right? Somewhere further down the the path. And, and by the way, there's also a certain melancholy in the Alan Squire character, like a certain yeah. sense is he's not only searching for the desolation, but he's looking to maybe join it. Yeah, sure. That's part of he it. He kind of sells the desolation too. You feel like you want to join it. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. Happy he to really join does. It. Like, fuck yeah. It's actually right. a movie. I don't know. I, I, I think we've talked, I talked about this with somebody, mm-hmm. this idea that those of us who, who occasionally suffer some sort of depression on some level, uh-huh. we, that we, there's a part of us that likes it a little bit. Oh yeah, it's part yeah. of the depression itself, right? Yeah, that yeah. you're so miserable. Yeah, there's a. There's this a, film kind of speaks to that. Sure does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely does. Yeah, it's it's lovely that way. Yeah, but um, but yeah, so the Alan Squire character, so they give him, uh, they 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 offer to give him the ride, and so they take off and and they meet. And they meet the famous Duke Mantee, aka Humphrey Bogart, aka. Yeah. John Dillinger. Now they've escaped, right? John, John Dillinger character, essentially, Duke Manti. They've escaped from prison? Yeah. Or are they, they just es- on the run? No, the they escaped from prison. And now, by the way, all throughout the earlier part of the movie, we've been hearing reports of the Duke Manti escape. Mm-hmm. Okay, because that's been like on the radio or this or that. Did you hear Duke Manti is escaping? Which is a ridiculous sort of ex- expository, you know, 1930s Warner Brothers film. Like you turn on the radio and immediately there's a newscast right. about what's happening <laughs> exactly. somewhere else. Because there's about. nothing else going, like no right. weather, no nothing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then, and and then at the same time, oh, there's also Gramps. Fuck, we can't pass up Gramps. Gramps is the old, is the the, the cafe owner's dad, uh, her uh, Gabby's grandfather, who has an, an enormous boner for the mythology of the old West. And Duke Mantee symbolizes to him that mythology, that outlaw mythology. Now, yeah. So, anyways, Duke Mantee, they've escaped from prison. Uh, their 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 car got shot up in the escape. They're basically all of the, the they escaped in a couple of different groups, and they're all going to meet up at this at this location. Right. This this 
this you know, diner. This diner at the, yeah. the, the asshole of, of creation. Here. Yeah, yeah. They're all going to meet up there. Uh, and, and so that's the plan. So meanwhile, their car got shot up. They got to pull over. Um, the rich couple. Oh, with, I just got to say, you're, you're I, so excited. You're like, you're, and then this happened, and this happened. It's really a joy to see, actually. And you, by the way, we should do filming so you can see the stupid hand gestures he's doing I'm doing hand on a fucking gestures. podcast He's here. bumping the mic. He's, it's, he's really excited about it. There's this. a car over here. That's my hand, and then that's them driving, and don't ask why. Anyways, but um, so they, they, they basically, Duke Manti bushwhacks the, uh, the rich couple. Yeah. They take the car. So Alan Squire and the rich people are left out in the desert without a car. Out in the middle of nowhere without a car, but with a handy black chauffeur who's going to be able to yeah. fix the so car now, that got shot up. Now he carried them all. <laughs> so so they, never, they don't show they don't show him in a hamster wheel. So in the, now uh, in record in the time, they get back to the cafe to warn the people at the cafe that Duke Mantis in the area. But right. the people at the cafe know because there's Duke Mantis. Because Duke Mantis is there. Now, one of the things that, that's really, like I said, really fascinating, I brought up Dillinger before, mm-hmm. is that Bogart looks almost exactly like Dillinger. Yeah. If you've ever seen pictures of Dillinger, Bogart basically had a little pencil-thin mustache yeah. like, but like Dillinger had. Had sort of a longish head. I mean, he looked physically the part, and he acted wow. the part. Except maybe for one part, because there's a famous sort of theory about Dillinger... Um, that Dillinger had a oh. Dillinger-sized penis. You got to you got you got you got to listen to the dollop on that one. Okay, they have right. an episode about this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't, don't don't tell me, but that I know that that's the mythology. Yeah, anyway, yeah the mythology a sort of is picture definitely of his penis that's like half rigor mortis <laughs> and half. It's also like in half, half in another room. Yeah, it's yeah. Insane. No, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, but but he looked the part of Dillinger so much, and Dillinger. Mm-hmm. Again, the Such mythology the of the West hadn't been lost on the rest of America. That was still there, and people still loved it. Yeah. And Dillinger, he became one of our first pop celebrities. Tom is, by the way, Tom is now yes, grasping his hands like he's got reins of a horse in his head. I've dude, never I, seen him this I, excited I, dude, about anything. I look like an opera singer about to hit the... Oh, fuck, why did you do that for me? Sorry. Cheesecake pie. Anyways, um, no, he's just... Yeah, I Just because I love this movie. Well, I, so, I'm, I'm, I love I, it, too. There's no doubt. It. You can okay, tell them that you love it, and I love it, actually, probably just as much as, as you do, even though you're kind of on the tear right now. But but one of the great things is all of that is really just at the first 20 minutes and it sets us up for the movie, which is all about one night in this cafe mm-hmm. between a, a Gramps, the old man who's who you know has had this mythological life, was shot by Billy the Kid or shot at by Billy the Kid right. at one point. Um, Gabby, the waitress played by Betty Davis, who has these sort of dreams. Alan Squire, who's now posited back in the cafe but mm-hmm. but her counterpart the guy who's manifested her dreams the opposite thinks, of her he's like the, he's like he's like the guy without dreams she's the guy with the person with dreams yeah, yeah yeah and then and then the rich couple who like can't believe that anything bad would happen to them and then duke duke mantee and his gang who are holding the whole thing hostage and together in this weird way and by the way side note i would also say the very interesting 1936 um sort of Portrait of Race, which is Joseph, who's the who's the chauffeur uh, yeah. driver, who's all about yes, sir, yes, sir, sort of shuffling. Mr. Yes, black. Mr. Chisholm. And, but then, but then, I think its name his name is Ruby, yeah. the African American gang member from Duke Mantee, mm-hmm. who has all the freedom in the world, yeah. because because he's uh, from the underclass, mm-hmm. and even the meeting of those two are sort of interesting because I think the filmmakers are talking about how it's like you have yeah. to be on the run. 
you know, risking your life, a gangster, a criminal, in order to get uh, any kind of like dignity yep. a, as a black American, right? And also I'd like to point out that that, that that it's only in that crew yeah. that that a black man sees dignity in. This yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. Right, like he's a part of their crew. Duke Mantee never doesn't you know doesn't order him to do something. He goes yeah. Ruby, let's let take care of that, and Ruby goes and takes care of that. Sure, and he's trusted to do so and everything like that. You know, there's that respect. So it just doesn't exist anymore. So here's my inclination, but I'm totally willing for you to. to to sort of change gears here. Mm. To me, I think we could leave a, all other summary out of this film because just to say that all of that makes the scene possible where all of these different players are trapped in the room and that exposition and 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 um, conflict and resolution has to happen within that room for the rest of the film. Yeah, it's got that quality. It's like, um, did you see, oh, what was that? Um, God of Carnage. No, Carnage. You know, it's got that it's got oh, that, carnage, it's got that yeah. carnage quality where you just yeah, the Roman you, put these film. Pe- you put these people in close proximity yeah. and their and their and their the gravity of their personalities just pushes them and, and makes this really interesting mix. And so yeah. In a weird way because a I, great think, I think things like Carnage or like um um nineteen fifty seven's uh, uh Twelve Angry, 12 Angry Men, Men. Mm-hmm. um like that film directed by Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet, bloke. Well he wasn't British, Tom. Oh, beg your pardon, Governor. That film has twelve men. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, Sydney Lumet. <laughs> Did he do a uh, Sydney Lumet as an Australian? Can uh, I, Sydney Lumet, Cobra? One more request. Can I have Sydney Lumet as a Russian? Yet. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that so, was actually a Russian. So one. Sydney Lumet um, directed uh, Twelve Angry Men in 1957. The great play, stage play. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think one of the techniques they used is that's an hour and a half film about. And in that hour and a half, Sidney Lumet brought the wall. It's mm. it's in one room, yeah. pretty much, the, the jury deliberation room. He brought the walls in about a foot and a half mm-hmm. over the period. Uh, now I'm doing Tom gestures into the air for the fucking radio. But but over the over the <laughs> 18 inches in, 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 in an hour and a half to, to increase the tension. And I think that Carnage um, does the same thing with its limited space. Mm. Um, so check out Carnage, I think, from like 2012 or something like that. But... <laughs> I would say that. Well, I would just say this: that that the Petrified Forest does it, but didn't have the wherewithal to do use any of those tricks. It's simply dialogue and situation that creates that tension Mm -hmm. over and over and over again over this night. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a brilliant film. Right. Yeah. No. um, You know what's a funny thing about this movie is when I don't think about it for long periods of time, I forget that it's maybe one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of my favorite too, and I'm going to say this too. Almost everyone I've showed it to hates it. Really? Every, it's such a dis- and it makes and they're wrong, as you know. It's upsetting. They're fucking insane, but but it, they don't. Mm. It's something. It's too old. Maybe. And it's too. It's also. It's very heavy on dialogue. Yeah. It's 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 it it is incredibly stagey. Yeah. It really is incredibly stagey in a way that that can be almost cartoonish, I suppose. And yet, it it appeals to like Bo is such a character, is such a caricature. Yeah. Of you know the, of the dumb American jocks sort of type. So maybe that kind of turns people I off. Yes, I, don't I get know. the same thing from Night of the Hunter, which is I've never shown that to somebody and have them like it. It's nuts. It's one of my favorite films. So we should do uh, that sometime. Although I will say Night of the Hunter, not to get too sidetracked here. It's it's one of my favorite films, but it's also like one of the most deeply flawed films. Oh yeah, yeah it's yeah, got yeah. serious problems. Yeah. I don't think Petrified Force has that level of problems. No, no. Technically, it's much it's much more adept. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You need to stop talking to people. 
Oh, sorry. Well, sorry, buddy. Mm, that's good. Sorry. Are we agreed that we love Petrified Forest? Nah, it's good. I got two. I, I, I actually, I got two. I thumbs thought those were your penis. nipples, but those are your thumbs. Two, two thumbs, two nipples, and a wee wee. Going straight up for this movie. Good I love the movie, man. buddy. I love the movie. I, I honestly, Tom, I think we're going to do something different on this one, and that is, I think we're going to talk about one film. Are we at that point? I think we're there. Only Jingleberry. How do you how do you feel about that? I feel fine. It's gonna be, folks. It's a one film uh, episode of the yep. Finley's on film. Oh my god, we just did a one episode thing about a, a movie that most people you showed it to doesn't like. I don't know, might be. We're gonna change minds. This is minds. the kind of business acumen that has gotten us we're where we are today. We're gonna change minds, Tom. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we're well, the fuck. F- I would love to think we did. God damn, that would make the whole thing worth it if one person like said saw this movie. Not quite, you know, physically Tom worth it. Jode. Oh, yes, absolutely. Where the, wherever there are people hanging, it's not unusual to be That's picking Tom berries Jones, by anyone. Right. It's not unusual to move from Oklahoma right, with anyone. We're the Finleys on film. We love classic films. <laughs> we love each other. We love to argue. We love to talk shit at each other. That's it, I guess. All right. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Ciao, ciao.